So as we introduce this evening, our topic is a current event on Brexit, and Brother Tim will be leading us on that class, and I call upon him now, Brother Tim. Okay, can everybody see my slides? I guess nobody online can say anything. Hopefully you can. Should be able to. Okay. Excellent. So um, just before I got into things here, I just thought that um, the things going on today in uh, Washington were of such momentous proportions that it couldn't really, uh, we couldn't really stand here and talk tonight without um, mentioning something about that. Um, for anybody that doesn't know, there was absolutely massive crowds. Um, you can see it in the picture there. Uh, I don't know how many people that would be, but I would think it's got to be like in the millions or something. There's like a lot of heads going on. Donald Trump spoke to them in person and got them fired up, and I think he got them a bit too fired up because um, it got kind of out of hand. There were riots, and there's I don't know if, if everybody's up to speed, but today was the day when they're counting the electoral vote. So in the United States, <clears throat> when um, each individual votes, they don't vote actually directly for a president. They vote for electors in their state. And then the electors that are pledged to vote for a particular candidate then cast their votes for the candidate. And this time there was some... Um, some disagreement about whether there was fraud and so on, and you ended up with a, a number of states with two sets of electors. Um, so today was the big day where it was going to be decided, and uh, it wasn't really looking that hopeful for the Republicans because they didn't have the majorities in the House and the Senate that they needed. Um, but there was people objecting to the vote. There's opportunity to object in case of such things, and then for the objection to stand, they would have to have a majority in both houses. So being as the one house is Democrat controlled and there's Republicans who were not willing to object, it was unlikely that anything would happen. Um, additionally, um, there was requests from officials, the state legislatures in the states to delay the vote count, which hasn't been granted. Um, so anyway, there was massive amounts of people here. They broke through the barriers, the police barriers, and they actually got up to the Capitol building. They smashed the windows and broke through the door. Um, they uh, were marching around inside. The people that were in session were taking cover and being ushered out. Um, <clears throat> You can see a lot of smoke going on. There was tear gas. There was a pipe bomb that was, I don't think it went off. Somebody was shot in the neck, a young lady, and taken to hospital, and, and she has now died. Uh, that's them in the main, um, it's like a big kind of circle part. We look at the outside of the building. It's got like a big arch. Uh, they've all stormed inside there. That's the, the woman was shot in the neck. Um, somebody sitting on Nancy Pelosi's chair broke into her office. Somebody hanging from the side of the chamber. Somebody making off with the podium. 
uh, pretty crazy things. So uh, this is not an average day in uh, U.S. politics. I don't know if anything like this has ever happened before, definitely since like the Civil War. Um, where exactly it will go, I believe, is anybody's guess. Um, they have now called in the, um, the National Guard, and the Army's been, uh, been getting the place under order and trying to ship people out. I'm not sure how they've got along with that by now. It was still going on when they left to camp come. There's a more recent picture outside as it was getting dark, and I believe by this time they had cleared the building. Um, but what has actually happened out of this is they've actually stopped the electoral vote count. All the people were ushered out, and um, it's unclear when they'll be able to continue. Um, there will be a lot of mess in the building. You're going to have broken glass around. There'll be things like the podium missing. And uh, exactly what they will do from here, we will find out. But... Um, not only is this very current events um, going on today, but um, it's also kind of related to our topic of Brexit, because um, part of the thing with Brexit is that it is the, the Southern Alliance that you have this kind of capitalist force in opposition to the um, in opposition to the Europeans and Russians and so on to come down against Israel. So the, the character of the United States is relatively critical to this happening. Um, I, I wouldn't imagine that Biden getting in would necessarily um, derail that or anything, but it may be somewhat of a setback, as we, as we will see. And whether um, it, it is, there is actually a, a small possibility that this happening uh, could bring to pass the event that Trump ends up getting back in, although it's, it's unlikely. The reason that I say that is every one of these states where there's um, contested results, I believe everyone, I'm not 100% sure, but definitely a, a good number of them, the state legislature has requested for a delay to the, the vote count today. They requested yesterday or maybe one or two of them were earlier. I'm not exactly sure of the timing, but uh, I think the last ones were coming in yesterday. Um, and the reason that they're requesting the delay is because um, they've been out of session. And um, I know for sure in um, Georgia, they wanted to be in session so they could, no, sorry, Pennsylvania, they wanted to be in session so that they could do something about it. I think Georgia as well. Pennsylvania for sure, and they were being refused. The person that had to call them back into session to do something, even though they're the authority that should be doing something if something was to be done, was refusing to call a special session, so they weren't able to do anything. But then I'm not sure when they get back into session, but they only needed a few days, and they'd be back in session and be able to take action. So totally wild, crazy things going on. Who knows what will happen, but um, watch this spot. It's ridiculous. And good old Twitter, um, flagging everything that's to do with the election and things they might not agree with. They, uh, they flagged Donald Trump telling all the people to go home and peacefully um, as election fraud and, uh, and stopped it being shared. So good for Twitter. You, uh, you stopped everybody and be, able to be told to go home. Uh, craziness. Um, I had this piece, and I actually hadn't included it in the end. This is from an old... Um, 
This is from an old uh, Milestones from Brother Graham. And he's talking about the character of America and, and the re- relationship with, um, with Great Britain. Um, we'll just start there where it says, as to our second point, as to our second point that Mrs. Thatcher's stand will draw the Commonwealth countries together. It is clear they are all Confederate by the word in Ezekiel 38. The opposing power of the South to the northern invader is expressed in verse 13. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say, These young lions of the old line, which includes America, are a world maritime group with a different outlook to the closely knit European community. These European countries are inward-looking and are connected by centuries of historical ties and culture. We suggest that the development of Commonwealth cooperation, he's talking about uh, Britain and the States and and that group, the, uh, the young lions, we suggest that the development of Commonwealth cooperation is part of God's plan to provide a worldwide agency to carry out Christ's worldwide work after being humbled and being subject to the new king. So he, he believed that the, the character of these nations was important um, because they would actually be used by the Lord when he was setting up the kingdom to, to help um, with that work. So be that as it may. It's very interesting. The things that are going on are very interesting. It could greatly affect the character of the United States. So now to my, uh, to my subject, Brexit 2020, faith vindicated. And I think really at this point, that's really the main point that I would like to make out of this. There's, there's other things and we, we will make some other points. But um, if there's one thing to notice and remember, it's that this was foretold long ago by faithful brethren and, um, it's absolutely um, a sign of the times, and it, it vindicates the, the faith and the understanding that we have had in Bible prophecy. So um, <clears throat> talking about Tarshish, what we're looking then at then is a, um, is a metal trading nation is one of the points. Tarshish was a merchant by reason of the multitude of all kinds of riches with silver, iron, tin, and lead they traded in their fairs. And I thought it was it was good just to back up just a little bit, just as a refresher and a, um, for anybody that's less up to speed with who Tarshish is, um, and just a reminder for all of us and for our young people of why we we believe that this is the case. Um, this is one of the key verses. Is is this one in Ezekiel chapter 27? So there's that verse that's we will comment on. And there's also other other things that we can point out and other verses that are involved. I'm not going to go into all of these, but I just thought that I would put them up. Um, if anybody's taking notes, you can you can jot any of them down. Uh, we'll just briefly mention them. So originally in Genesis chapter 10, uh, Tarshish is mentioned as a descendant of Japheth, and it mentions that it was from this particular group of people that it mentions um, in those verses that the islands of the Gentiles were populated. The isles of the Gentiles or the coastlands. Um, And with talking Britain, clearly they are an actual island. So that's Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And there's there's mentions of Tarshish in, um, in the times of the kings. 
They were an ancient maritime power, which we can get from Second Chronicles 9, verse 21, and Psalm 48, verse 7. Um, they traded in ancient global markets. There's a list of things that they traded in in Second Chronicles 9 and verse 21. And we know from Jonah that they were the distant west of Israel, that if Jonah was looking for somewhere to flee away from his situation, away from God, as it says, that um, Tarshish was the place to go. It was like as far as you could possibly imagine away from Israel. So we move on a little bit then, and we get to the time of Ezekiel and some of the prophets around that time, around uh, 600 B.C. and, and thereafter. We know from Ezekiel 27, which we just read, um, and also uh, verse 12 and 25, both verses there, that they're a source of silver, iron, tin, and lead, and they they traded with Tyre with those metals. Um, Isaiah 23, verses 1 and 5, I had forgotten this little fact, but I came across some evidence as I was looking that... Um, was actually evidence of of British trade with ancient Egypt. And Egypt's actually mentioned in Isaiah chapter 23. If you compare verses 1 and 5, we'll, we'll look that one up in just a minute. Um, they take over from Tyre, um, Isaiah 23, verses 6 and 7. We move on to the latter days. We see in Ezekiel 38, as we read, that they're a colonial power with younger related nations. And um, Isaiah 2 and verse 16, if you know the context, it's the latter day, and they're a maritime power at, uh, in the latter day, which you can also get from Ezekiel 38, but added confirmation. And um, they're separated from Europe, as we've said, and they're involved with the return of the Jews at the time of the end, Isaiah 60 and verse 9, which we have seen. So first of all, just those medals that it mentions there. <clears throat> Here's a map from um, from Roman Britain. I know that there I've seen one from earlier, but I couldn't put my hand on one when I was putting this talk together. But from Roman times, which is only just after, um, we have evidence of silver, iron, lead and tin being mined in Great Britain. Um, here's an example of an open face mine like they used in those early days. What they do is they'd set fires and, and heat up the rock and get the metal to melt out of the rock. And there's a, a paper that I found, an academic paper, um, new ideas on the exploration of copper, tin, gold, and lead ores in Bronze Age Britain. So that's Evidence that is talking about <clears throat> discussing the, the mining of those metals at that Bronze Age time, which would be those early dates that we would be looking for. Here's another mine. Um, this was a copper mine in Great Orm in Wales. And uh, they've actually found by tracing the copper, because they can tell, I, I suppose probably partly because they weren't, amazing at purifying the metals. So there would be there'd be different trace elements that you would get <clears throat> um, in those metals depending on where they are from. And there's other um, isotopes and scientific methods they have of kind of like a fingerprint of the metal that they can tell where it came from. So they found 
they found the mine. There's significant copper mines in Wales there in Llandudno. And uh, all the little red dots on the map are places where they found bronze made with that copper um, throughout Britain and, and into Europe. So we know that it was very significant and that it was traded in all those places. This one is also very amazing. Um, a lot of you might have seen it, but we'll bring it up again anyway, just because it's amazing proof. Um, just off the coast of Israel, they, um, they found, they excavated under the water and found some sunk um, tin ingots. A tin was, is one of the metals that was, um, that was mentioned. I, I'm, I'm guessing that the reason that it would be tin that they would bring all the way from England and not copper is copper was more common. But tin was actually a very, very rare metal. It was one of the, the metals that they needed to, to make the copper into the stronger bronze that they used for just about everything. So they found that um, based on the modern scientific methods of fingerprinting the metals, they can tell that the most likely place for this tin to have come from is Cornwall in Britain. So we have evidence not only that the mining was happening, but it actually made it all the way across to the Mediterranean just off the coast of Israel. Here's a quote from that. The scholars used an earth-shattering approach to find out the mine's locus by using a combined approach of tin and lead isotopes together with trace elements. It's possible to narrow down the potential sources of tin for the first time, they write. The most logical source, according to the authors, the most likely suppliers of the 13th to 12th century BCE tin ingots from Israel are tin mines from Cornwall and Devon. So, 12th and 13th century BCE is, is very early. So that would be, um, when would that be? That'd be like the times of the judges, I think. Don't quote me on that. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm pulling that off the top of my head as I speak. Um, here's another one. They found in, um, in Britain, um, this, 2,300-year-old, or about 300 BCE, Carthaginian, which Carthage was kind of a Phoenician settlement. That as um, the Phoenicians moved around and traded, one of the places where they set up a settlement within, was in Carthage, and the the, the language and the um, and everything is the same. They can tell that it was Phoenician. So um, it's this coin. I'm not sure why they say it's from Carthage and not um, that it's Phoenician, but it's essentially the same thing anyway. It's 23 years, 2300 years old, and it was recently found in the Bristol Channel um, by a young lady and uh, turned out to be amazing. There's a, a close-up of it. And there it is compared to a, a more well-preserved um, Carthaginian, <laughs> it's a tongue twister for me, Carthaginian coin. So there's the one that was found in a little place called Stoutford, close to Bristol in Britain. So trade is a key feature then of, um, of this alliance in Ezekiel chapter 38. So not only um, as, we, as we look then, um, not only is it important that, that this, 
that these nations are together, but they're also trading is a key thing. And um, that was the case in the past. They were a trading nation, and it's still the case today and will be in the future. And I, I do think it's important, um, you know, things like this are, are in a prophecy, and it tells you about how they're traders. Often you see things like that in the prophecy, and it's not really there just for your interest and to help you figure out who it is, but it's actually likely to turn out to be a fairly key um, point as to the development of, of these things, that the the one side is is more of a trading block that they're um, that that's their their character their their free market um, traders their um, capitalists whereas we know on the on the other side they tend to have uh, a more kind of socialist and um, and, and perhaps verging on, on communist sort of the, the, the larger government and a different kind of character that they're not quite so more, they're more protectionist and uh, it's a different kind of character. And I think as, as events um, develop, we might find that, that that comes more to the fore, that we see that the importance of that in bringing this together. Um, I probably put this slightly out of order of what it should have been. I kind of plopped it in after. But um, <clears throat> I mentioned about how there was other coins, mostly from Egypt. And the reason I plopped it in after is because I, I hadn't remembered about the verse saying about Egypt, <clears throat> but I'd seen, the, I'd seen about them finding the coins. So when I saw that that was in the verse, I was like, hey, they found the Egyptian coins. So I, I put it in. So those are places in Britain where they found um, – coins of a similar age to the one that they found in Bristol uh, with, with inscriptions on them that they, they, they think are from the Ptolemies, which is from that kind of time period. So um, if, if this was a, a trading nation back then that was trading in these metals, one of the things you might expect is that when they go and trade, they might bring back the money from where they go and sell their wares. So we know that a lot of times trade back then was done with exchange of goods that they might, um, and I mentioned that in the verse, so they'd bring their metal and they might come away with, with purple or uh, different things that they want back home. But um, also uh, there was money going on, and, and there's evidence of that. So those are the verses from Isaiah 23, where it mentions the trade with Egypt. So in verse 1, it's the burden of Tyre. And Egypt is a bit of a side point, but it's definitely there. So context, Isaiah 23, verse 1, the burden of Tyre, how ye ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in from the land of Kittim, it is revealed to them. So talking about the destruction of, of Tarshish, and it's being laid waste, and, and it's going through that. But then verse 5, it says, <clears throat> as the report concerning Egypt so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre. So the the um, Tarshish people, these traders of Tarshish, were were howling and were distressed because of the uh, destruction of Tyre. But in discussing that, in comparing their grief about the destruction of Tyre, it says that it's the same as their grief about 
the report concerning the destruction of Egypt or the report concerning Egypt. So in that context, you'd say concerning the destruction of Egypt. So it's a side note. The prophecy is not really about this happening to Egypt and, and whatever, but it's saying that there will be similar distress about that, which if there was that much trade going on, they found far more Egyptian coins. So maybe you could say that the, the trade going on in Egypt was maybe even more if you were to, to compare, or maybe it was going on later. It's difficult exactly to say. Um, although the, reading that verse, I would expect that Egypt was having the trouble earlier. But um, either way, both nations were involved uh, with Tyre, and Tyre was, was distressed about the, what had happened to both nations. I do think, I just wanted to put this verse up as well from Deuteronomy chapter 18, because although the the strict context of this verse is how do we tell if something that a prophet has spoken is something that God has said? Um, Let's read the verse together. Deuteronomy 18, verse 21. And if thou shalt say in thy heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? So if a prophet gets up and says something, How do we know whether they're just making it up or this is something that God has spoken? So what does he say? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So what's the test? The test is if it comes to pass and it happens, you know that it's right. Now, I feel by extension, you can also say that if there's a prophecy that's true, and you read it and you, you misunderstand that prophecy, then that might be a cause for it to not happen. But when, when there's a prophecy and um, it's, it's there, it, it passes this test, not only do you know that the prophecy is true, but you, under, you know that you understood the prophecy correctly. Because if you did not understand the prophecy correctly, if you... If you gave a, a false interpretation of what it was not really trying to say, then you would expect that that would not come to pass. So the vindication of this is, um, is, is of course, a vindication of the word of God, but it's also evidence that um, brethren correctly understood the word of God when they were saying these things. So Milestones 1992, I just have a few quotes here. Um, I just wanted to show some of the, the things that were mentioned in older publications. I don't know if these are the best. These are ones that I came across. Some people and some of you may have better ones, which I would, I would like to see if you do. I know that there was some, I think it was, maybe it was brother John had one. One of my brothers had one that was from 1970 from like way back at the beginning. But, um, I figured, well, if I give you different ones, that's good anyway. It was, this kind of thing was said constantly when, from the time that Britain joined the European Union up until now when they've left, brethren have said they need to separate. So here's Milestones 1992. What are the implications for Bible watchers? Britain is to be drawn away from political union with the EC, as it was then, the European community. As we have seen in previous two chapters, she has grown on trade in the latter-day Tarshish. We would expect her to trade in many markets to make herself rich. So we don't expect her to be focused only on the European community. She's got to have a wider outlook, and we'd expect her to to be drawn away from them. So um, 
It's definitely true, and it's come to pass. Milestones 1990. Um, this is this is kind of interesting because Brother Graham here, um, he actually highlights how that there was that Britain was Britain being in Europe because you might think to yourself, well, if Britain was never to be part of this uh, alliance, if they were never to be part of Europe in the end. Watch my time here. <clears throat> I threw all that extra in the beginning, so careful I don't run over. But um, if if why why did Britain ever go into Europe to begin with? If God's purpose was not for her to be in Europe, then why why was she there? Why did God not prevent her from joining in the first place rather than having her join and then leave? But she's actually shaped the character of Europe while she's been in there. Is the point that he's making in 1990? So he's um, commenting on the actions of Mrs. Thatcher, of course, was the Prime Minister of Britain at the time. Mrs. Thatcher's stand against European Federation is intended to work in two directions in the divine program. It will prevent Western Europe being fully federated, remaining as a confederate, a confederation. Secondly, it will draw together the Commonwealth and make it a worldwide trading unit, having sterling as its common currency. Because they were staying separate, they weren't joining the euro. Um, they were keeping their sterling as the, the British pounds. Um, so then you might wonder why he would say that. So he carries on down in the next red part. Our scriptural reason for emphasizing the confederation is the language of Revelation chapter 17 and 19. Although they indicate that it is the eighth beast that goeth into perdition or ruin, the detail clearly tells us the military power of the beast is exerted through his ten, through its ten forms. And the ten horns which thou sawest, these have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. So his point is that um, this clearly talks about ten horns or ten individual powers that are giving the beast its power. So it's they are they're joining together and giving their power to the beast rather than just becoming kind of um, merged together into one homogenous whole. There is there is this um, there there's the the nationality is is kept there that they are a horn is like a power, so you have ten horns, you have ten individual powers. So they come together and they have the same purpose and they do the same things, but there's there's that individuality that is left there. So it's interesting because it was Britain that stood up and stopped that from happening so they didn't become like the United States of America as kind of one federation where the, the individual states don't have their own armies, they don't have their own power nearly the same. They... Um, they uh, they all are part of the one whole and act as as a single country. So we expected that to be uh, to be maintained because of the language there. And, and if you look, um, this, it's right in the context. The ten horns which thou sawest um, goes on shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. So he's saying that this has to remain the way that it is. Excuse me. 
In chapter 19, the destruction of this eighth beast is linked with the destruction of the false prophet. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that brought miracles before him. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. This linking of the false prophet with the beast established that we are dealing with the last phase of the European Christian system, also that it is its military power resides in its ten symbolic forms. So um, Brother Graham then saw that although he expected Britain to separate themselves, that there was a purpose for them to do in Europe, which I thought was quite interesting. This is the Guardians of Israel and Arabia by my father. His, his subject is this, the alliance of, um, of this guardian group that we, that, uh, are mentioned in Ezekiel 38. He has this little sidebar in here that's titled, Britain's exit from Europe is inevitable. On what basis is it claimed that Britain's exit from Europe is inevitable? It is simply this. She cannot be in both sides in the coming conflict. Either she must be with the latter-day northern power allied with Russia and Europe, or she is to be identified with the southern group of Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lines thereof. She cannot be on both sides at the same time. Which side will Britain be on? This book places before the reader an outline of evidence showing that Britain is identified with the prophecies that concern those who protest and oppose the aggressive northern power. And so he goes on. Again, in the cry of the prophets, Britain will separate from the European Union. And there's um, similar comment there. But just... I just put these up there really to say, look, this is the old book. I took photos of it to um, show this is actually from it from back then. Uh, I did have pictures of the title pages, but I ended up not putting them in the end, but I had the date on there. This is from, um, I believe this one was 1990, and um, and the other one, which one, this one's the older one. Mm, hang on a second. Okay, so Guardians of Israel and Arabia is 1990. <clears throat> and the other one is 1998, the, uh, the one that we're on here. Guardian, sorry, I flipped it. This one is 1998. <clears throat> and you can see the little cartoon in the corner there that they're actually, I mean, pretty well the whole time there's been this, this tension between Britain and Europe as, um, as Britain's kind of held back on on various things that the Europeans have wanted to do, and they've kind of been a dissenting voice in a lot of things. Okay, so now it's now it's happened. Um, they've pulled out, and and they're now they need to, and it's important because it, Brexit's happened, but they have their trade deals and they have their different things. So what? How much sovereignty do they have? The short answer is they have the sovereignty that they need. The important thing is for us. Looking at these prophecies, the most important thing anyway, there's um, more than one. I guess there's, there's two main things that, you, that immediately come to mind. The one is that they can set their own foreign policy, and the other is they need to be part of this, this alternate trading alliance. <clears throat> so uh, this particular uh, article here points out about how they now have, have to, um, to develop their own foreign policy, which is good. Uh, Boris Johnson's post-Brexit trade deal passes into law, so it's actually happened. It's a done deal. Um, and, of course, as we've mentioned already, there's the, the 
the relationship with the U.S. Now, I think everybody unanimously pretty well, it's pretty obvious that Boris Johnson had a much better relationship with Donald Trump than he does with Joe Biden. Um, as, as this article here from the BBC points out, the election of Joe Biden leaves Boris Johnson facing a substantial diplomatic repair job, and so it goes on. But anyway, on a, on a personal level, he's going to have to have a significant repair job to do to be able to deal with Britain. Interestingly, <clears throat> this article, there's a lot of it, but I decided to not include the whole thing. It goes through everything. But it's talking specifically about the, the details of um, the, uh, the drafts and discussions between Britain and the States on a trade deal. It says, as the deal is yet to be negotiated and the UK government is secretive about its objectives, we do not know exactly what its provisions will be. However, the US has been more explicit about what it would seek in a UK-US trade deal. Some of these provisions would have a profound negative impact on health, welfare, and the environment. This is coming from a, a UK point of view. UK civil society organizations coordinated by the trade justice movement have therefore developed a, a series of red lines that they would like to be honored. So um, if you go through their points, basically what it comes down to is that Britain has been part of, and I think generally tends more towards more of a socialist sort of bent. They, they have more regulations on things like their meat. Like um, in the United States, they, um, I guess they, do a chlorine wash on their chicken after slaughter for safety, but this is outlawed in the UK. <clears throat> so um, Donald Trump has said, well, too bad. That's how we do our chicken. If you want to buy our chicken, that's how it comes. <clears throat> and um, and there's other things with, with various, there's something with the beef, the, U, the US used hormones that are not um, growth hormones that are, that are not okay by European and British standards. As a series of, of things, but if you distill it down, it's it's kind of like the the UK has stricter um, policies about various things that could affect trade. And Donald Trump is very much a, a deregulationist. He doesn't want to have to tell everybody what they can do on such things. Whereas Biden tends to be a little bit more in line with the the European way which is the UK as well, and, and would probably be actually, when it actually came to negotiations, he might be more lenient to be a little bit more in line with where Britain's at. So that could be something that actually, when push comes to shove, puts the negotiation further ahead, but we will have to wait and see. Um, it's also interesting because you would expect that um, the Southern powers or um, Southern compared to Israel, kind of Western, um, Britain and, and the Young Lions. And I guess Australia is not very Western as far as distance from direction from Israel. But these, these English-speaking countries that you'd expect to make this alternate trading block <clears throat> are um, antagonistic towards Russia, which is another thing that um, the, the Democrats in uh, the United States had spent years trying to accuse Donald Trump of collusion with the Russians, and they, there was a lot of anti-Russian sentiment, and, and um, there's a lot of ill feeling 
uh, of the Russians towards them and so on, there's going to be some, some, there would have to be some bridge building for them to, to develop a relationship with Russia. Russia's uh, not feeling any warm, fuzzy feelings about Joe Biden coming in. But again, that's something that we would, we would expect. We'd expect there to be hostility there. And to be honest, once again, I don't know if they would be particularly warm and fuzzy with Donald Trump either. So it's not, not a game breaker, but um, just something that I thought was interesting. If it was the other way and, and he would be more likely to repair relations with Russia, that might be something we'd expect to be more of a setback and take longer for the situation that we're expecting to see to develop. As we talk about Gulf trade, there's the GCC that it, it mentions there is the it's a it's a Gulf economic trading group. I can't remember exactly what that acronym stands for, but experts say deal or no deal by December 31st, the coming years will likely much see much closer economic ties between Britain and the Gulf, which again is um, very important, and it's exactly what we'd expect that these these ties would strengthen as that alternate trading group develops. We've also seen. Um, a little bit of hostility between Britain and, and Europe already. Um, Britain's had warships out in the, in the channel to protect their fish. Um, they had four Navy gunships out on the first day to send a clear message that they're protecting their waters and they better abide by the British rule. They're, they're, um, they're emphasizing their sovereignty that they have now. Johnson and his, and his conservatives in Britain have made deals with a massive number of countries around the world. I think it's in the region of about 60, something like that. There's a lot anyway. It covers most of the world. Um, there's this particular group of nations. There's a, a, um, a, uh, I'll just read it. I'll, I'll tell you. Champions of the free trade want the UK to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, an agreement between 11 countries around the Pacific Rim, including Australia, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, Singapore, and Vietnam. Signing up to a trans-Pacific partnership from our little perch on the edge of the Atlantic would be a fantastic symbol as well as a really substantive pro-free trade move. Mr. Jones said he would not be surprised if U.S. President-elect Joe Biden wanted the United States to join to the partnership as well. I think Donald Trump has been resistant to joining. So that again, that's something that um, may indicate a, a, a drawing together under Joe Biden. Um, the original partnership was pushed forward by the Obama administration and would have been the world's largest free trade deal, but President Donald Trump pulled the US out in, 20, in 2017. So once again, if this is an Obama deal, Biden was part of the Obama administration. It's very likely he'd want to, as part of his great reset, he would like to, to put the U.S. back in. But that might actually bring him closer to Britain and, and um, some of the other nations that are in there that would be relevant. Um, the EU is to become more solidified in Re from Revelation 17. They have one mind and give their power and strength unto the beast. So although, as uh, Brother Graham said, they're not to be totally homogenous as they just become one unit. As you see, the, the feet and the toes in Nebuchadnezzar's image, you have like the different parts of it. You've got 10 toes. You've got the iron and the clay. There's that uh, division there. Is there a more loosely collected group? 
and you've got France and Germany flexing their muscles and trying to get themselves as head of the group and, and muscle some of the, the smaller ones into submission. Um, and again, they're they're trying to um, they're trying to solidify their block really. But you've got France and Germany that are stepping to the front and and trying to to get the rest to do what they want. Um, I just thought I'd throw in here as well because Iran is part of the northern group, and we're having a, a tremendous amount of tension between the West and and uh, Iran. Um, They've announced that they're going to enrich uranium to 20%, which is a big problem. People have, have been um, speculating that Donald Trump could actually start a war with Iran before he finishes his term. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But um, nevertheless, there's there's a massive amount of, of tension there, and, and it's not dying down anytime soon. And Rouhani actually declares that Trump would be dead in a few days as Iran-U.S. relations keep crumbling. So really, really not looking too friendly. But as we look at all these things, we just need to remember it's all in God's hands. And um, as it says here in Daniel 4, verse 17, this matter is by decree of the watchers and demand of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will, setteth up over it the basest of men. That's all I have. Thank you.